2, Seven Heads, Ten Horns, with Klaus Yoder and Travis Stevens. Welcome back to Seven Heads, Ten Horns, the internet's only podcast, History of the Devil. I am Klaus Yoder, and here with me is my partner in heresy and diabology, Travis Stevens. Travis, how are you doing this fine August day? I am very excited, um, mainly because today is the end of my work week. Uh, tomorrow, I get to fly to Vancouver to visit family, so I'm very much looking forward to it. Get the F out of Dodge. Go see the fam. That's right. Cross the border. Very cool. Very cool. International living. Very cool. Great. Well, we're here. We're here gathered today <laughs> to <laughs> discuss. The few, the faithful. Yeah. Yeah. To, to discuss, to continue our devil book club and talk about a novel from 2005 by Hilary Mantel. Uh, and the book is Beyond Black. And it's a book that came out before she really hit the big time with the Wolf Hall, Thomas Cromwell trilogy that got her the man Booker and got her, you know, to be a best-selling author and got her like royal titles. She's like a grand dame of the British Empire or, or something. I, I don't know anything about any of this stuff, but that's that's what I see on the internet. And yeah, so this is one before her breakout Maybe it's good to talk a little bit about Mantell right off the bat, just to sort of sketch in a little bit about the person who's writing this. Hilary Mantell, like, sadly passed away about a year ago, uh, pretty, pretty young. I think she was about 70. She was not very old. And she's someone who, and this really comes across in the novel, had a very difficult childhood. Her parents separated very early. She didn't see her father again for most of her life or at all for the rest of her life. She lived in a house that she described her, like all the adults in her life described as being haunted. She talked about seeing floating apparitions and, and seeing things that were like sort of the spiritual manifestation of evil, like just sort of bumping into that as a child. Unlike her parents who were sort of the descendants of Irish immigrants she didn't have to work in the factory. She managed to get to the University of Sheffield and got a law degree, married a geologist, traveled the world, lived in Botswana, lived in Saudi Arabia at different points because of her partner's work as a geologist, but like battled really severe pain throughout her entire life and was basically told by doctors, the classic don't believe women when they tell you about your pain by medical industry thing. And she had to diagnose herself, which ended up being endometriosis, which is like extremely painful and went back to England from Botswana at the age of 27 collapsed and had a major surgery, but just had like sort of dealt with the after effects of this for her entire life. But she was really drawn into writing by the sense of something the, the quote in the in the Guardian obituary, the impulse to write grew out of her sense that something was seriously wrong with her, that her pain in some way is really feeding into the the, the writing she did. And her first love, her the first books she wrote were historical fiction. She wanted to be a historian of some kind, and she was obsessed with the French Revolution. And the, that novel took decades to appear. It was not a good time to be writing historical fiction. 
but the novel A Place of Greater Safety did come out eventually. But yeah, she so she has this historical bent that really pays off with the Thomas Cromwell trilogy later on. But then she wrote all kinds of things, and whether it's historical fiction or literary fiction or a kind of supernatural novel like the one we have in front of us today, there's a lot of hauntedness, there's a lot of pain, there's a lot of trauma that is is being worked through. Um, so yeah, that's 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 Hilary Mantel in a nutshell. Something of a kind of until her big success, like not really inside the literary establishment, was always sort of felt to be an outsider, probably because of in part because of sort of family, sort of her childhood trauma, but also like just the sort of rapid class ascent that she made from being very working class to being professional and then like sort of this sort of upper echelons of bourgeois literary culture. So yeah, I, I think other th- aspects of her, her biography may materialize as we talk about it. We're not going to reduce this book to her biography, but everyone who, who seriously looks at this book also seems to be also in like dialogue, everyone but us, of course, <laughs> but it seems to be in, in a serious dialogue with her autobiography, her memoir, um, Giving Up the Ghost from 2003, which came out just a few years before this appeared. So these two, like these two books do have some pretty interesting parallels. But so that's a little bit about Mantell. Many of you probably have, have read her, you know, the, some of the Thomas Cromwell books. I must confess I have not. And I did not as someone who was studying the Protestant Reformation for a doctorate at the time that they came out, just like sort of con- as a contrarian, just like refused to engage with the pop culture <laughs> <laughs> representations of things from the era I was working on. It's really smart of me. But I think, and I actually received a copy of Wolf Hall for Christmas recently from from uh, from my mom. And so I think actually now I like trust Mantel from reading this novel for the podcast to, to actually pick up the, the smash hit. So that's a little bit about her and my stupid relationship to her her work. Uh, Travis, what should we say to introduce readers to the plot of this novel? And like, just, I think we will do some, there will be some spoiling. So if you like really don't want it spoiled, stop listening to us and, you know, go read the book. It's, a, I think we both found it to be a pretty fast read, like in a good way. Like it, it really, it really sort of uh, moved along. Um, that we yeah anyway we'll talk about it later, but yeah so what's 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 up with this plot? Yeah, so we're introduced at the beginning of the novel to Allison, who often is referred to as Al in the novel, um, and that is our Allison Hart is our main character. She uh, she's working at the outset of the novel as a performer of sorts uh, on small stages across England and on sort of convenient to the major freeways. And in these small time performances, she makes the world of the dead visible to her audience by listening to them and um, being a kind of conduit for messages that come from dead people who have messages to tell to the people in the audience. Bit by bit, as the novel goes on, you learn more about the the distance between the performance that she puts on and her experience of interacting with dead people, that there's a lot of, there's a bit of gossamer that's 
thrown over the lens, a little bit of uh, shimmer and shine, a little bit of softening of the edges of what dead people actually have to say. We learn a lot about the world of the dead through the novel, but at the outset, we, ha we meet a performer, essentially, and that's Allison. Colette is also present very early in the novel, and later we have a flashback where we learn more about how she comes to be Allison's professional and personal assistant is how I would describe the role, though the titles <laughs> move around as the, as the novel goes on. Colette is a thin waif of a person physically. She's a bit mousy. In her younger years, she can easily get the attention of men. As she gets older, that becomes more of a challenge. She has a troubled relationship with Gavin, her ex, at the, at the um, outset of the novel, now her ex-husband. Um, and we learn more about their relationship. Allison and Colette, um, initially Colette is a client seeking the services of Allison, who's mesmerized by her performance, wants to have a private reading, ends up getting offered a job on the spot by Allison to serve as her kind of professional and personal assistant to live with her and manage her life. Why does she need someone like this, you might wonder? Small-time performer, can't she manage her own business? Well, one, she doesn't have a head for the business side of things, but she also has difficulty in her personal life because of the ways in which the dead interact with her. And here I should mention a group that we're going to refer to as the fiends. Um, these are male entities that are at first just last names that we start hearing. These folks, especially one called Morris, who is her spirit guide, we learn, um, is around her and other people can't see Morris, but she can, other people can't hear him. He's quite crass and he's doesn't, he has no manners. He interrupts her. He talks lewdly. He has no concern for what time of day it is, etc. And so she's has trouble interacting with the living world because she's um, constantly also being bothered by, harassed by, harangued by these figures. As the novel goes on, we start to realize that these names um, of these people, including Morris, are people who were once alive and whom she knew in her childhood. Um, and we'll get to uh, more of the big reveal later. Yeah. Okay. So we have Colette, we have Allison, we have the show. Um, and as they initially get together, we learn um, a few more characters who are important are um, the psychics in her small cir professional circle, people she rubs shoulders with at conventions, that sort of things. Um, and uh, Mandy is probably the most important of them. Mandy is someone she can bounce ideas off of, who understands what it's like to be a medium or psychic or um, to under have contact with the spirit world. And an interesting dynamic that de develops is that Colette tries to isolate Allison and be her only friend, to be the one that she relies on for everything, um, managing all parts of her life. Their relationship. Yeah, let's say, uh, we'll say one thing about that too. Like yeah. one of the things that's also true of Allison is that she's like she's a large person, and I like like there's one part where she's like I'm a size twenty and proud of it, and Colette's like you're a size twenty six and you're ashamed of it, and like there's like this something we'll talk about I think later on, but part of the 
intrusive management that Colette tries to exercise and Allison's life is like body shaming and, and dieting and, and, and this sort of thing. And it's like one, it's not the only thing, but it's like one of the major tensions in their relationship. They are making money. Colette's managing the resources well. She's like very, she's very B-school. She's very professionalized. She's very like adept with office and databases and things like this. And they managed to move into like a really like large suburban house in this on Admiral Admiral Drive and all the houses are models of houses like named after admirals and in British history like Mountbatten and and this sort of thing and they are achieving and succeeding in terms of like middle class values they're in the suburbs all this stuff they're in a big house. It has portholes to fit in with this nautical theme. Super important. Right. Don't forget the portholes. Right. That's that's important. And they, but they're making they they're 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 in each other's hair and they make each other miserable. And there's like sometimes like this sense of tension, like whether there's an attraction. Allison doesn't really seem like she can have any kind of physical intimacy with anyone from like a really traumatic childhood. Her her mother was a prostitute. Her mother allowed her daughter to be prostituted. They lived in this town of Aldershot, which is like a military-based town. And there's like just all these sort of rough men who make up the fiends around all the time. And like one of the major plots of the novel is Allison trying to remember what these people did to her and what she did to them. And that the novel, like one of the main narratives is like a, a narrative of, of remembering, of like failing to remember, failing to process, but then like finally being able to remember this, this part. And she has these fiends as her spirit guides. Every psychic or, or uh, sensitive, or I think that's what the, the word they use in the, in the text, um, has a spirit guide. And her first spirit guide was not, were not these horrible men, but was this, this nice older Irish woman, Mrs. McKibbit, who vanishes when when things are actually getting too intense with these these loudish, violent, dangerous pack of like abusive men. So that's a little yeah, just a little bit of of the sort of the dynamic between between Allison and and Colette. And one of the weird things is like Colette is suspicious or wants to prove Allison to be a fraud. She wants to be let in on the fraud. But she wants to believe herself and she gets into the psychics because at the moment when her marriage falls apart, she has her own kind of experience with the occult. She thinks she talks to Gavin's just recently, like just dead mother. And she didn't know that this woman was dead. And she has a conversation with her on the phone after the point to which she's died. But then from the rest of the novel on, she has no like contact with the world that Allison's in. And I think that's one of a that's an interesting, interesting choice that Mantel made. Yeah. I wonder, did you buy it that that was a genuine experience of hers? There was some doubt cast in the mind of the character Colette about whether she actually reached her mother-in-law or who had died or if it was a random other person that the lines got crossed or something. I tended to believe that it was, um, it was meant to evoke a quote unquote real experience, but that the doubt was also important. And the fact that there were no other experiences made us wonder, Oh, can regular people have incidental contact with the dead in this worldview? 
And that's how Mantell describes her own experience with like the spirit world. It was like incidental. It didn't happen a lot. It happened once, you know, that she described in, in this one interview. So I do think that it's important that Colette's on the point of breaking, shaking up her life and trying to make a big choice, a, a big change when this happens. But as she sort of starts to like reossify into her normal habits and routines and characteristics, like the, the, the chance to have this sort of liminal experience fades away. Yeah. So as the novel proceeds, the, there's some tension that builds from a few different areas. One is the fraught relationship with Gavin, whom they accidentally run into in some, you know, big box store in suburbia near their suburban home. Another source of pressure is the neighbors because, and I love the subterfuge that goes on with the neighbors. One of the best jokes of the novel is when the neighbors ask Colette what Allison does for a living. And she says, oh, she's a, she's a forecaster. And they all assume that she's a weather forecaster. And from there on, always She lets ask. them believe that. Yeah, she, she, she purposefully. Believes, she, allows, she, she purposely makes them believe that, yeah. And so from then on, Allison is constantly quizzed by the neighbors on the weather, and she has no idea why. It's it is it's fantastic, and I love it. And it's interesting too because the weather like kind of matters not necessarily about the plot so much, but like the the novel is very presentist in a way. It's so climate change is a topic that comes up, and like people are talking about the heat, and they're talking about the uns- like the sort of the flash floods and and these other sorts of things. And so there is like this sense of suburban menace in the fact that the environment and the weather is just like suddenly unmanageable and she's kind of blamed for it. And another thing about these, them, they're moving to the suburbs and it's also, it's another good joke in the novel. Um, there's a period in the middle where Allison is free of the fiends as her spirit guides because they move to this like sanitized suburban subdivision. And the fiends are like, where are dirty pubs? Like, where, where's like the mustard and the vinegar like they used to make it? Like, like no, we, like there's nowhere to hang out here. And so they, they are actually, they're actually repulsed by the blandness of the suburban subdivision and refuse to follow after her. And um, one thing that Allison notes is that the dead like to adhere in dirtiness, especially like, you know, especially like sort of, the not very nice dead and that she's like they're always cleaning because if you don't clean up like the parts that you don't clean can like sort of contain this malignant energy and one of the things like i really like about the novel is the representation of of the dead and one of the things that is made clear through the novel is that psychics mediums the 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 sensitives never talk about death they never name it there's a lot of euphemisms about it there's like earth side and and air side air side is one way they talk about it but she as you said she has this sort of layer of gossamer where she's like letting her clients think that like being dead is kind of great and you look your best in reality people are like are kind of jacked up and and can like you know, they can look really gruesome. They, they And a lot of them don't know they're dead. A lot of them are, they're not like these helpful, wise spirits. They're, a lot of them are just kind of full of shit and are try, are lying to you. Like when Princess Diana dies over the course of the novel and like there's a lot of spirits who try to impersonate Diana 
and and the people are you know people are like always trying to run they're scamming you and so that's one aspect of it and the other thing that i thought was really interesting was that it's almost like a zombie movie because there's there, the the landscape seems to be littered with these kind of gruesome cadavers who materialize and are sort of bumping into you and are bugging you, but they're they're not trying to eat you. They're just like trying to ask you stupid questions. They're you know, and so I think she kind of did a great job mixing different genres of of like horror representations of death in this, and where you have like it is like sort of like your kind of haunted house kind of spirit sort of like i don't know more gothic way of thinking about haunting but then it's also i felt like there was this kind of like hardcore splatter zombie core kind of thing going on with it too that i that i appreciated some definitely some beetlejuice in the mix of the way she thinks about especially the fiends as these um malcontent ne'er-do-well like they're joking a lot. There's bad, dirty jokes, and they're gruesome and they're gross. And and I, I yeah, I saw a lot of different influences from from horror, it's like 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 sort of cinematic representations of death, and I I appreciated that. Yeah, um, jumping back just a little bit to our evocation of suburbia, I think it wouldn't have been a complete discussion unless someone mentioned. Revelation 3, I know your works, you are neither cold nor hot, would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. What I love is that lots of different people repulsed by suburbia. Colette doesn't want to go there, but Allison is seeking the anonymity. The reason she wants to be there is because no one in her mind, no one wants to be there. She's anonymous, she can't be found, or only a certain sort of people want to be there. And it does end up repelling the demons. Um, for a while, anyway. For a while, it, it doesn't last. Yeah. 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 I wonder if we want to, I can go on and do some big reveals about the end if we want to finish that, or we can come to that later and talk a little bit about bodies. Yeah. So. I think we can talk about, I think maybe talking about bodies is, is a good idea. Great. And the, the rest of the plot will sort of develop as it, as it goes on. And I think like, you know, just like a content warning that some of this stuff is like pretty disturbing. The first thing, and, and I say, I have a content warning in my mind because one of the, a detail I came across while sort of flipping through trying to prepare was that one of the ways that Allison understands her, the sort of the cause of her being sensitive is as she as she starts to re- remembers more and more at the end of the novel is her mother's attempt to abort her with a with a a knitting needle that goes through her head and she thinks that sort of opens her up to these outside influences from the the spirit world but yeah so we've ta- we have mentioned that Allison is like is like a large person and that she's has this conflict with Colette about it and listening to interviews with with Mantel she sort of describes Allison as like sort of like having this kind of luxuriousness this sort of milkiness it's kind of like almost a plenitude and it's contrasted with Colette's watery thinness and one of the ways one of the first demonstrations of her psychic abilities with Colette is is, is to reveal to her that she's a child of incest that that she's that her that her uncle is her is her father and not not her father and i don't like you know i think like it would be 
not fair to say like that's the reason why Colette is the way she is. But I don't know. What were some things about Colette that, that stood out to you, Travis? Because I, she's one of the most, for me, like one of the most um, enigmatic figures in the novel. Sure. Um, I find Colette very interesting in her corporality in a few different ways. One is that she sees her heft as a necessary part of combating or managing what it's like to live with the dead. That, this is Allison. Yes, Allison. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Allison's um, Allison feeds herself so that she has the bulk to do what she has to do. There's a there's a need for her to have this particular kind of physicality that she has on the one hand, but on the other she seems to reflect some of the shame that Colette is imposing on her and of course society is imposing on her for being fat and consents i suppose to the really restrictive dieting that Allison manages and of course uh, that Colette manages and of course Colette is the one who actually ends up losing a little bit of weight and Allison doesn't manage to right and it's it's another one of the it's it's part of their their like sort of simmering conflict because like Allison wants to follow the advice of Colette or feels like she has to but then she also feels like oh I'm being I, I can't even eat like a, a hard-boiled egg in my own house or I can't have a piece of toast like she feels surveyed surveilled you know she feels like she's being scrutinized by this cold eye and like I said that Allison doesn't really seem to be like in a in like a state to be able to have like intimacy with someone else and there's sometimes there's like hints that like maybe she would want that with Colette or at least initially I'm not sure um but Colette also is like like had this initial fling with Gavin that just sort of like materialized into a bad marriage but like is also just like seems like alienated from her body and from desire too in, 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 in particular ways. And there's this, there's this great line I love because um, one of the other conflicts is that Allison tries, Allison is like altruistic. Like she wants to do good works. And one of the things they fight about is she actually keeps an unhoused person like in their garden shed and like feeds him for a while. And this isn't exactly attached to this part, but there's like this one quote where uh, this, this sort of the contrast between like Alice, like it's all kind of comes together, like Allison's physique and Colette's physique and, and morality kind of all sort of are in, sort of encased in this one set of sentences. Allison says, I didn't do it for the sake of the spare ribs. I did it because I wanted to do a good action. Colette never does a good action because she is being thin. It is what she does instead, <laughs> as in being thin instead of being good. And I really love that as, as to me, it's really just, it reveals something that I see in my life and around me where uh, body management and fitness culture and the aesthetics of them have been taken to be morality, that, that thinness is goodness and, and that they, these things are goods in themselves and actually you're supposed to reveal your moral state. And this novel is like a real, is a real, refutation of that that idea that that you know an idea that on the surface we should all see as like 
patently insane, but like seems to be one that is really predominates the culture. Yes, I think that situation of feeding the unhoused person in the shed that Allison does is quite revealing as well. The generosity that she wants to show by giving food, she has to do surreptitiously because it will look like to Colette as if Allison is eating that food herself. And so you have these two competing moral universes, one in which thinness is the ideal and is the good in itself, and another in which uh, sharing food with someone who doesn't have it is the higher moral good in direct conflict over and around these issues of body and morality. What about the fiends and bodies, Klaus? Mm-hmm. What, yeah, what, yeah. what do you think is interesting there? I mean, first of all, they're dead. So for most of the action of the novel, though we have brief flashbacks to when they were alive, what do you, what do you think we have to, to notice about the fiends and their bodies? Well, they still, you know, one of the other things that I think also kind of connects to the why I thought about zombies and Beetlejuice with the ghost is like, they're still eating and drinking and farting and like, and like how visible you can smell them sometimes. Like they, they have a kind of corporeal signature in the environment. And like Morris has described as sort of like having like the same, like kind of a broken leg. They, they kind of wear their injuries and how they died with them as they, as they go forward. And then later, and I'm, we'll talk about this in a little bit, later when they are promoted through uh, the devil's corporate training program, they start to get actual enhancements to their body. Like they can make their like jaws extend, their tongues roll out. They can make themselves look more horrible. And it actually leads to like scaring to death this woman, this other, this other psychic who sort of posed as Allison's grandmother and was a, a mentor, but also like, like her mother was like sort of also like a bad maternal figure who was not trustworthy and, and, and didn't support her and these sorts of things. But anyway, so yeah, like we, you know, the embodiment of the dead is also something that the novel keeps bringing back in. And I think it, it speaks to that point you made raised about Allison's, Allison's heft and rotundness as almost a way to kind of like hold on to living tissue in the face of like having to just like deal with all these mutilated shriveled cadavers you know yeah absolutely one wants to feel one's feet on the ground when dealing with entities that can interrupt corporeal physical reality i think that does make some sense and also keeps her where she should be when she's constantly being drawn into being drawn airside as the novel would Mm -hmm. say right it kind of keeps her from going too much into the air or something right and then she's she's got the the heaviness to sort of stay on the ground yeah yeah i like that so 
maybe we'll, we'll move on and talk a little bit about the devil. And we, in terms of antagonists in the novel, we're mostly dealing with the this pack of of fiendish, like churlish, awful men who help Allison make contact with the spirit world as her as her guides. But there are moments where other aspects of the spirit world come into in and out of focus. We don't really hear a lot about God or any of the good side. There are hints about there being malevolent spiritual figures in play. And one in particular is is Nick, who shows up at certain points. And if, I'll, I'm going to read this one scene from the, the book that where Allison is, is, is has his flashback and is vividly connecting with this impression of meeting this man in her kitchen and not knowing what's going on or who he is, but she kind of does know who she is. It really, you know, for me, like when I was reading it, and this is how I imagined it, it's like uh, Bob from Twin Peaks, like this kind of like <laughs> scary, like, like kind of crusty dude just popping up in and out of this corner of the, of the camera. Um, so this is, this is, uh, this is, this is that scene. So Colette is interviewing Allison to record some, some, uh, quotes for a book that they're trying to write. So Colette says, how do you feel Allison when you first knew, how did you feel Allison when you, when you first knew you had psychic powers, Allison? I never, I mean, I never really did. There wasn't a moment. How can I put it? I didn't know what I saw and what I just imagined. It, you see, it's confusing when the people you grow up with are always coming and going at night and always with hats on. Hats or their collars pulled up, disguises, changing their names. I remember once, I must have been 12, 13, I came in from school and I thought the house was empty for once and I thought, thank Christ for that. I thought I might make some toast and then do a bit of cleaning while they were all gone out. I walked through to the lean-to and I looked up and this geezer was standing there, not doing anything, just standing there leaning against the sink and he had a box of matches in his hand. Christ, he was evil looking. I mean, they all were, but there was something about him, his expression. I can tell you, Colette, he was in a league of his own. He just stared at me and I stared back at him and I thought I'd seen him before. And you have to make conversation, don't you? Even if you suddenly feel as if you're going to throw up. So I said, are you the one they call Nick? He said, no, love, I'm a burglar. And I said, go on, you are Nick. He flew into a temper. He rattled the matchbox and it was empty. He threw it down. He went, can't even get a light around here. I'm going to sack the flaming lot of them. They're not worth a bench in hell. He whipped his belt out of his trousers and lashed out at me. Colette, what happened then? I ran out into the street. Colette, did he follow you, Allison? I expect so. So that's the most direct contact we get with Nick, who is this sort of vague presence, vague sinister presence in the background, and who seems to be the one that the fiends report to for duty. So I was, you know, you know, this is our main tie-in for the, the, the central theme of the podcast. Old Nick is a, a, a nickname, a nickname for the devil in, in English contexts. And that seems to be what Mantell is, is drawing on. And just looking about, like you do on, on the internet, coming across an Oxford University uh, press website about entomology. And this guy had a great, this guy, Anatoly Lieberman, had a great article about this. And he's like, there's a number of theories that entomologists have put, uh, put out over the years of where we get this strange 
name Old Nick for the devil. Some of the oldest stuff, Nikor is Old English for sea monster. And we've talked about sea monsters and the devil before in the podcast, of course. There's the verb, like Nick is into cut or to, to kill. And there's a German one that seems maybe related to the devil's persona, Necken, to like to tease. In the early modern years, like in the 16th, 15th, 16th century, 17th century, uh, the political philosopher Niccolo Machiavelli was seen as this embodiment of cunning and like courtly duplicitousness and the two-faced manipulative politician and almost became, even in like sort of folk common parlance, uh, an image of, of, of evil. And then sort of also in a folkloric register, there's this uh, this sort of person who could go underwater in the legends for a long periods of time Niccolo Pesce, like Niccolo the fish, who sort of morphs into a sea demon sort of person. And then is associated with St. Nicholas, who was a kind of sort of a, in the earlier in earlier and other cultural representations of St. Nicholas, a sort of intimidating, scary person. And Lieberman's like, he doesn't think any one of these is, is it, but like just sort of seeing the different registers or possible ways that this old Nick thing could have come about as interesting. One I, one I forgot is also medieval allegories and plays, passion plays. The symbol, the devil was called old iniquity. And so old, you can hear how old Nick and old iniquity kind of, kind of could go together. But yeah, Lieberman doesn't think it's, it's any one of these, but it's still, even if it's not, it's maybe it's drawing from all of them or a few of them or, or who knows. Yeah. I but wanted yeah. to turn back to the passage that you read and, comment on a couple of things one that at the end when colette says well what happened after this encounter with nick and he whips out his belt allison says i ran out in the street did he follow you and she says i expect so why does she say i expect so there are traces throughout the novel of this search for recovered memories this search for origins and explanations that come from the past from her childhood and this is another example of that and i think it's interesting that nick is nick's relation to her past remains if i'm not wrong correct me klaus if i am remains mysterious to the end we the main other function of nick that comes out later is this business manager head of the pyramid scheme where your rewards are getting your your modifications, getting your tattoo actually able to move and slither up your arm, that sort of thing. Um, but it leads us to this larger question that the book poses about having one's own demons, I think, which is what's the connection between universal symbols of evil and the particularities of evil that manifest in our lives, in this case, in forms of domestic violence, child abuse, sexual assault. And I don't know that we get answers, but the question is posed in a really helpful way, I think. How do those things interact? I think she makes use of passing symbols of universal evil to describe what is quotidian and horrifying. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's right. Cause there's like sort of a magical realistic sense that you could just bump into the devil in your kitchen. But then on the other hand, the devil is like an abusive male relative or like guy or boyfriend, your mother's boyfriend or something like it's, which is horrifying. Right. So it's like sort of these different, I think you're right. It's like these different 
registers and, and using the a universal cosmic symbol for like just the the horrible trauma of this abusive childhood on the other hand like it is like in the novel like this guy like it sort of does sort of fuse both and magical realism this is this does seem to be the devil mm-hmm. um and you mentioned one of the themes that you see in the novel is a criticism of the sort of rise of the corporation and neoliberalization of british society and so when the fiends disappear for a spell in the middle of the novel um they're getting trained in nick's like you know corporate seminars in and when morris comes back to bother al uh, they have this conversation that sort of get bring this out morris puffed up his chest and tried to straighten his buckled legs and he's talking about one of his compadres one of his one of his friends in the, the fiends aiken sides got made up to management aren't you informant with our new terms of employment we've all got our training under our belt and we've all been issued with notebooks and pencils mr aitenskide's got certificates too so we're supposed to be foregathering foregathering where here is as any good as any what brings you back morris what brings me back i have a mission i've got a big job on I've got taken on a project. You've got to retrain these days. You've got to update yourself. You don't want to go getting made redundant. There's no such th- such thing anymore as a job for life. And that's like this, this, this sort of, the, you know, the idea that like in the mid 20th century, you could have a job for life with a pension and maybe work for a union or for the state. And now it's like, no, like it's all been privatized. Everyone has to change jobs all the times. So that's the new normal. Stop whining about it. This is just what we got to do. We got to keep retraining. And that's what, you know, people like Colette and corporate America are doing. And that's what the demons are doing too. They have to retrain and they're working their way up the pyramid scheme of, or, or the, the rat race of, of uh, the corporate hierarchy, which, which, which is great, like, great satire, great, great roasting of, of this uh, post Thatcher pre Brexit British world that, that, that Bantel is, writing about as she lives in it. She lives in the same sorts of neighborhoods that she locates Al and Colette in, you know, it's, she's not standing back from some castle or mansion laughing at the proles or the, or the, the suburbanites. She is, she is there with them. And this is, and she's sort of making use of the hell, the air conditioned hell or nightmare that she's in. So one of the questions that you posed Klaus about, the politics of this book in thinking about this detail of what it is to be a sensitive. She mentions that when people come to her who are from other cultures, other kind of religious worldviews, et cetera, she says, oh, basically I only deal with white people, like with white people. With yeah, Irish that's right. Entities. Yeah, exactly, yeah. So yeah. it's like, uh, what's, what's off the table there? All of these, she finds it too confusing. She doesn't speak the languages that are necessary. She doesn't have the, I guess, cultural competence, we might say, uh, to be a sensitive beyond her own culture. So how do we read that? That seemed, it just didn't seem necessary to include that, Klaus. I feel like you could have written this book without that. And so I feel like there's something we're supposed to um, understand or notice about that. Yeah, I mean, I think you can look at it as trying, as 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 an author trying to set up the architecture of this world to make it convenient 
<laughs> and to write the kind of story she wants to write. And so she, you know, and, and so you sort of have this, these, these parameters that exclude dealing with people with different languages and different, you know, possibly different skin tones. But I was really reminded of how in Dennis Wheatley's The Devil Rides Out that, you know, the, 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 uh, the explanation as to why the cross is so powerful is because it's like, oh, this is just, it's like the vibrations have, have been here for so long. And it's just that Christianity has been naturalized into the English landscape. And here it's like a little bit more secularized, but it's like, oh, like only the only people who I'm going to work with are the ones whose language I speak. And like at a time, and the novel is like trying to deal with and is criticizing the xenophobia and the hatred of immigrants and and asylum seekers like it's it's there you know and i'll talk about that in a second but like also like it has this real built-in self-inflicted wound of saying like well uh i'm not going to deal with anyone with different languages or different backgrounds and i i i see it i mean for me it's one of the it's like the novel's chief it's one of the novel's chief failings is is like i you know because i'm like for christ's sake the people who don't speak the same language like manage to communicate and like you know if you were if if people were like you know bothering you you would you would figure out some way to to deal with it and maybe the implication supposed to be i think it is is that like oh you only go to people who look and who are of the same stock as you that's also kind of depressing in some way though too like it makes sense to a certain extent but like it's like i don't know to make it absolute in the way the novel seems to is like seems like you know to, to use an overused word problematic (laughs) <laughs> sure. But, yeah. but I wonder also about her portrayal of the dead as being similarly limited to how they were in life, that it would yeah, interrupt yeah. the world that she is creating to have language no longer, to have kind of magical post-death interpretation available or something might conflict with that. That's one perhaps overly generous interpretation. Another could be humility and the skill that Allison has. Allison is not a superhero with magic abilities. It's supposed to be beyond most people and extraordinary, but limited in certain senses. And this could be maybe not the best way to go about this, but one way of showing her humility, her her human side, that she has limitations. Um, but I feel like there were other ways to do that. So that doesn't really wash with me. And then finally, she does offer that worldviews about what happens after death are so divergent that, for example, how would you reconcile a world in which reincarnation is the fundamental system with one in which there's an afterlife of punishment or reward? Because well, not that that's not included in reincarnation, of course, but... Allison assumes she's reincarnated. Like, they, like the, the psychics believe in reincarnation. So I don't know. Um, I think it's just it was it was uh, my I, you know I think it was just a way of trying to make the novel manageable. Yeah, fair um, enough. Which is understandable on some level. But yeah, I mean, and and I was just saying like this is also in a novel that's like really flaying this kind of pre-Brexit xenophobia and moral panic. You know, she talks about these these places where they live, and and present day Britain as as having no community. And she's like, in the, you know, in an interview I listened to, she's like, it's a banal point, but it's like really no, none, you know, no less serious for it that like people just have no connection, and that's why that's how Mantell interprets people 
their, their hunger to go to psychics is just to find out something about themselves because they have no roots. They have no tradition. They're alienated from their families. And that's the, that's the Britain she finds herself in. But it's also a Britain like that is in the, the sort of the war on terror and is dealing with politics of immigration and asylum seeking, you know, as, as, as different world catastrophes are playing out. And so this extends this, this critique of, of the, the mean spiritedness of the suburban British extends to this neoliberal corporate training of the fiends because they're not just doing what they're, what they're, the ranks they're, they're, they're rising through are not just like, they're not just like, you know, making money exactly though. They are interested in that in some little bit. And I'll, I'll read a passage that sort of describes like their, their participation in a kind of privatized security apparatus for, for, you know, or like border patrol um, or ice. They're, they're like the spirit ice of, of Britain. And Morris is talking about how they're, they're kicking, they're sort of, they're, they're kicking out, they're kicking, they're kicking out those who don't belong. And Al said, kicking who? And Morris says, this is her, her previous medium, not just kicking, kicking out. We are chasing out all spooks, what are asylum seekers, derelicts, vagrants, and refugees, and clearing out all specters unlawfully residing in attics, lofts, cupboards, cracks in the pavement, and holes in the ground. All spooks with no identification will be removed. It ain't good enough to say you've nowhere to go. It ain't enough to say that your documents fell through the hole in your breeches. It's no good saying that you forgot your name. It's no good pretending to go by the name of some other spook. It's no Good saying you ain't got no documents because they ain't invented printing yet. You got your thumbprint, ain't you? And it's no good saying they cut off your thumb. Don't come that. They all say that. Nobody's to take up room they ain't entitled to. Show me your entitlement or I'll show you the boot. In Akenside's case, six boots. It's no good trying to bamboozle us because we have got targets, because Nick has set us targets, because we have got a clear-up rate. Al said, is Nick management? You're joking me, Morris said. Is Nick management? He is the manager of us all. He is in charge of the whole blooming world. Don't you know nothing, girl? She said, Nick's the devil, isn't he? I remember seeing him in the kitchen at Aldershot. You should have taken more notice, Morris says. <laughs> so, right, this is an idea we're familiar with, the prince of this world, right? The devil is the devil is in charge of this world. But it's a world of, in early 21st century pre-Brexit Britain. It's a world of rounding up migrants and it's a world of, 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 of this kind of border control and xenophobia and privatized security that is, that's become banal in our world. But it is, is she really does a great job of bringing out the nightmarish qualities of that world and extending it not from, you know, even as the people are in death as they were in life, extending that, that sort of, that mean spiritedness and that privatization of everything and the racism and the state power into the next world too. And I, I, I tip my hat to that. Yeah, that was, that's probably one of the greatest strengths of the novel in terms of ideas, I would say, is that belonging and identity are tied still to a bureaucracy, to state power. Um, that there's there's no escaping that even in the afterlife. Oh, what a depressing thought. 
but you can... and but this idea this idea of these fiends or these demons as the security forces this is an idea we've been dealing with the entire podcast right like yeah. going back to enoch and going back to jubilees and and all the and, and going back to job and all you know all these different moments it's and, and the, de- the demonic paradox where the devil the devil and the demons are the enemy and the security forces and the police and the bureaucrats all simultaneously she's just updated that for neoliberal war on terror era britain and yeah i, I think it's she did she says in the interview she did a lot of research on the occult and she went and visited psychics and she did she learned about the history of spiritualism but i said like there's also like a real intuitive understanding of the role of demons in the christian tradition and maybe that's from her primary school middle school years at a convent school um she was raised catholic maybe maybe they really had solid teachings on angelology and demonology there i don't know but like she really gets it and and i really i really love what she does with it here i also want to bring out the point that you made around the public their audience and the reason they keep returning to these sensitives is their longing for roots ultimately it's their longing for connection for identity that they aren't given in the bland world of this you know pre-brexit uh britain I think it's it's lovely that hunger but that it's resolution or partial resolution depends upon this labor of allison as she struggles with quote unquote her own demons and has to face the brutalities that are the ugly underbelly of this very same society of exclusion of domination of state power of policing women's bodies and their size etc I think we've worked through a lot of our stuff. Should we, should we spoil this novel? I mean, yes. like there's, there's a, it's, yeah, like. it's time. If you, if you've been disobeying and saying, Oh, I'm not going to read this. Well, first of all, I would say this is worth reading. I would recommend this novel. Yeah. If you're interested yeah. in some of the themes that we've outlined here, I do think you should read it. You should stop listening now and come back after <laughs> you've listened to this yeah. final yeah. bit where we're going to discuss drum roll, please the identity of Nick. So who is Nick in relation to Allison? And when do we learn this, Klaus? Right. So we learn, and it's very, the way we learn is very strange because they're like, some of the parts I read are like audio recordings of Colette talking to Allison. And the conversation where the truth about Nick's relationship to Allison, to Nick's paternity, of Allison uh, comes across in one of these, it seems like it's almost rattling off on a cassette tape somewhere between the fiends talking about it. The fiends know that, you know, like one of the Allison's problems is remembering who she is and where she came from. And even as a little girl, she keeps asking these fucking cruel deadbeat psychopaths. Oh, Keith, are you my father? Oh, you know, MacArthur, are you my father? Like, are you, she keeps asking these people, who are hanging around this bordello of a house that they live in, which one of you is my father? And they're like, we know it was Nick. Like, Nick's, Nick's the father. Um, so like, that's the big reveal. And one of the things, the questions I had is, what does Nick impart to Allison? Is that the psychic abilities? Is that part of the deal that she has? She does have this, the, the force is strong with her because, you know, it's like it's like a sort of, again, dipping into her sort of pop cultural influences. It's like a, it's like a Star Wars thing, you know, is the force strong in the, the Anakin family or whatever? Um, I don't know. Um, but the other, th- one of the ways that this question came to me was one of the other big reveals of the book is not only 
who her father is, but like where these scars on her legs came from, why she keeps having these like, like sick, like she keeps, when she has flashbacks, she's like sick and disgusted. Why an eyeball of one of these guys follows her around sometimes as a girl. And what, like, what is the other, what, what is the, what is the mystery of the eyeball? Like, what is, what are, what, you know, what are some of the things that she learns besides the, besides her parentage? So she learns more about her relation to the fiends, this group of dead men who are uncouth and follow her around everywhere. Namely that they were her, they were her childhood tormentors. She knew that already, but what she didn't know was these these funny things about them. They had experienced violence themselves. One of them is missing an eye. Another one is has been castrated. What she didn't know is that she is the one in as a child who committed these acts of violence against these men, removing one of their eyes and cutting off one of their testicles. And it remains ambiguous in this recording that we have a transcript from that's ultimately supposed to lead to a book that Colette is going to write on behalf of Allison about her life. It remains ambiguous as to whether these were acts of vengeance or retaliation or violence for survival, or if perhaps these happened earlier and the men's assaults on her happened as their form of revenge. Unjustified, of course, as a child. Like, what are, you, what are they doing? Um, and that, to me, is tied to the parentage that we're presented with, with Nick. In other words, is her, do we understand her identity as a daughter of the devil to be manifested in doing acts she can't even remember of great violence? I, I lean toward no. I think that I, she did I, these I, in I response no, to yeah. the environment yeah. she was in and the abuse that probably happened first. Um, and instead, I wonder, I noticed that she doesn't get any respect from any of these demons at all, other than their attention, which is not respect. That's not the same thing. Um, though they have all this great respect for Nick, which leads me to wonder, oh, okay, perhaps it's true that being the daughter of the devil in this universe does not make her special. Who knows? Maybe he has dozens of progeny all mm -hmm. over, you know, that seems likely. Yeah. Um, yeah. But is her psychic ability, she seems... In, here we go. In the same way that Jesus is has been revealed by biblical scholars to have been described in the gospel accounts as a miracle worker, but like a, not just your run-of-the-mill miracle worker, because there were others, but as a super remarkable worker of miracles. I think in a similar way, Allison is portrayed by Mantel as not just a sensitive, but a a, an especially gifted sensitive yeah yeah beyond yeah. is that tied to her parentage I, I think we're just meant to wonder and not really necessarily know but i would maybe assume that that's the case yeah i think that's i do think it is a little bit of like oh this the the anakin skywalker the skywalker family kind of thing you know the family inheritance thing i do think that there is something to that and i also i think that the, the violence has to, I, I don't know I, I can only see it as retaliation for abuse that's been that she's endured um and that's, that's that's the only way it makes any sense to me but in different moments of the novel she'll be like holding a fondling a spoon she'll be like sort of almost like sleepwalking and like come to the spoon and like you learn in these scenes that like she used 
you know, utensils creatively to to uh, defend herself and to get back at her tormentors. Um, and and uh, again, sort of blending the domestic and the banal with the extreme violence, extreme terror and, and the supernatural as, as something we've seen throughout the whole throughout the whole book. But a lot is left, I think, unexplained about this relationship to Nick and what it means for her beyond what we've talked about. It's, it seems to me like a signifier that's meant to point to something huge and kind of doesn't here. I think that's very so you, interesting. You, yeah, yeah. Um, right, it's almost as if being the devil's daughter is like actually, like you were saying, like not even that special (laughs) like it's just like whatever it fits into this landscape that we're in that we're not ordinarily supposed to notice about suburbia about the spheres of domestic violence about the lives of fat women etc i think that our our even our markers of the most powerful cultural symbols of evil that we have don't do something dramatic in the normal uh, heroic sense of the word. Uh They also don't explain suffering. I think that's also something that's interesting that comes out of this is that her father being the devil doesn't explain the suffering she went through, right? Like she could have just been with these horrible men, you know, and presumably when, when they were, when they were abusing her, they they weren't dead, and so they weren't working for the devil in a direct way, in the way they are now, and for for homeland security, for demon homeland security, or whatever. And um, the devil is is almost drawn to this. Like the devil isn't the cause. The devil is like a an echo of of normal everyday pain, you know. And not everyday, like you know, this isn't normal what we see here. But it's 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 much more common than 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 you know we're we're sort of supposed to talk about. But um, I think that's that's a great point. That's a that's a really, that's a really strong point to to sort of bring this to a close with. Maybe the last thing we can we can wrap up with is how you found like her representation, Mantel's representation of the occult and psychics, and like whether we can extend what we see there to maybe ideas of of religion. But like I've I've read around a little bit, and sometimes people we're acting as if the whole psychic thing, like maybe it's true. Maybe it's not true in the novel, which seems like a ridiculous way to read the novel. It seems like it's taken to be all really happening (laughs) in the novel. Um, But like, how did you see Mantell treating psychics and palm palmistry and, and fortune telling? Like what, what, what did you feel like maybe not her attitude per se, but like, what did you think the novel was, was showing us about this, this side of, of spirituality and, and, dare I say, religion, too. Well, we have already commented on the fundamental desire for connection, for answers, particularly to do with relationships with people who have died that funds or motivates or moves the economic (laughs) side of the business, (laughs) again, to, like, think about the novel on its own terms. I also think she directly uh, addresses the question of the charlatan as a part of this world where there are people who are total hacks. There are people who are better at it than others. 
right. and that there's a and distance. And like, like you were saying, Allison's like is talented. She's visibly she's like more talented in the novel than other other psychics who have some talent, but not like her level. Yeah. And there's a dis- a difference between having this ability to communicate with dead people and being able to monetize to put that make that a good show and the ability to monetize that as three really distinct experiences or just phenomena. And I think that is done sensitively. I, time for me to come out of the closet. You don't know this about me. My, one of my mom's first cousin's wife is a uh, psychic, is a psychic, has f- maybe working in the 90s in Texas. And I think all she does now, for a while after that, she stopped doing readings per se and did more uh, hypnosis work before medical procedures in particular to help people with improved outcomes from surgeries, that sort of thing. It became more banal, (laughs) Mm -hmm. more suburban, uh, thinking about this novel. Um, So for that reason, I guess my own relationship to psychics is colored by that experience of her um, and being related Mm -hmm. to her. And I don't know. I think it was done sensitively. I think we enter this world and part of the difficulty of writing a novel about spiritualism, psychic sensitives is to draw your audience in to the world. If you're going to portray any of it as based on real experiences of the practitioners, you have to dispel the doubts. And I think one of the brilliant ways that she does this is by talking about the kind of underbelly. We get to see Colette's view of the business um, and the inexplicable and the difficulty with communication between people who are sensitives and people who aren't. And I think that was so well done. What about you? Right. Yeah. And I'm mentioning a little bit because I, this, the CBC interview, the interviewer was like, well, what do you think Hillary about psychics? And one of the things that a few things that Mantel said, one thing she said that the people who are desperate as skeptic, people who are really committed skeptics, she's like, you know, the, one of the things they say is that the psychics are, are lying or tricking their, their clients. And she's like, but there's nothing to suggest that the skeptics themselves are, aren't capable of lying. So there's that sort of parody question. But she, the other thing she says about the skeptic, the figure of the skeptic or the ra- this hardcore rationalist or enlightener is that they're scared. That they're a lot of, like a lot of them are, like they're sort of reacting from a place of fear. And, she, you know, of course I already mentioned she had her own experience with, um, this sort of malevolent spirit that she came across as a girl that she's like, if my mother had made me go back outside to play and wouldn't let me draw, she's like, I would have dropped dead from seeing that thing. Like it was, it was that intense. And then she said over the course of doing her research for the novel, she went to psychics and she's like, a lot of them were unremarkable and the things they said could apply to 90% of all people at any given time. But she's like, there were some times when the things that they were most, they were the best at were describing people in my life who were dead, who you couldn't just make, like, you couldn't be like, oh, they're like a, a middle, a, a mid-sized man with brown hair going to gray. She's like, no, like she, like they described a friend of mine. One of these psychics described a friend of mine who was a very striking person and described his appearance and hit the fact that he was in the Navy, like with like complete detail. And she's like, there were just like one or two times where she's like, oh, wow. Like, 
that's uncanny. And so the thing she she says like the, so like the the host is like well like do you think it's like uh it's it's uh it's real it's beneficial for people it's uh you know manipulative and she's like it's all three it can, people can be it's getting monetized people can be manipulated it can be it can tap it can tap into real experiences that people feel are veritable and it it can be useful or, or abusive and to me that really reminded me of like what something james baldwin said about religion where it's like it's just like james baldwin but also like william james like the point at which it's not useful it's you know the point at which it's not helping you live your life better is the point at which it becomes untrue not because of necessarily it's like epistemic certainty or ontological reality but like we live in this kind of kind of fluid not like sort of non-reducible states of experience and we've used the word experience a lot and she uses it a lot and so her remarks about the psych like her her thoughts about the psychic trade and 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 the and the occult really to me you know as someone like you who you know studied religion like really resonated with how people who study religion make sense of these different realities and, and entities and experiences that people have that are, that are hard to prove, but are like socially real at the same time. And I really, I really appreciated that um, in the novel and in what she said about it. Well, this was a really lovely conversation and yeah, yeah. I, I can recommend the book. I right, like, it's our, fir- our our first one <laughs> that we're not recommending with extreme qualification, like for historical reasons. We might have one of those, com- another one of those coming up soon, um, as I'm finding out, as I'm reading. But uh, yeah, this one was uh, was was great to talk about and had so many good ideas and had had some problems, but you know, like was really on the whole, I thought worth worth discussing. So yeah, thanks for listening. See you next time. This pod is made possible by support from the Satanic Horde, Asmodeus, Mammon, Leviathan, Beelzebub, and listeners like you. Thank you.